Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis. Today's episode is sponsored by the University of Tennessee at Martin. UT Martin offers more than 100 academic areas of study within 18 undergraduate degree programs. Contact UT Martin today to find a program that's right for you. Welcome to Real Foot Forward, where every single week we explore the people, the culture, and the history of our home right here in West Tennessee, just like we do every day at our Museum and Heritage Park, Discovery Park of America. I'm so excited to have this special guest today. Matt Crossan is the creative arts pastor of Crosswind Church and a personal friend of mine. So start me off at the beginning. Where, where did your story start? Where were you born? Um, I was born in Mississippi, actually. My dad was in the Navy. Okay. And then they moved uh, when my my dad got stationed in Jacksonville, Florida, and that's where I grew up. Because I knew, yeah, I knew your story had sunshine. Yes, a lot of sunshine as opposed to today. Like on, the, <laughs> so. on yeah, it's gloomy today. Like on the beach, like were you actually? Um, a we beach lived about kid? forty minutes from the beach, so. Um, but Jacksonville's like a really big town. Orange orange trees, like in your backyard or anything like uh, that? No, actually a little too north for orange trees. Okay. I have lived near orange trees, and yeah. orange groves are beautiful in the summertime. So growing up, what did little Matt want to be when he grew up? <laughs> My kids just asked me this question. I actually wanted to be a taxi driver. Okay. That was the nice. first occupation I can nice. remember. Okay. Uh, I don't know why I wanted to be a taxi driver. I wanted driver. to be an ambulance driver <laughs> oh, from the very well, beginning. Well, that's a lot more noble. <laughs> Must have been something about transportation, maybe. I think I saw something uh, on the Muppet Babies or something <laughs> that made me want to be a taxi driver. <laughs> and so when you went to school, when, when um, well, let me ask it this way. When was your first uh, musical realization that you're a musical kind of guy? Let's see. I, I played saxophone in middle school, but I quit that to play basketball to, so I could impress the girls because no one wanted. And you're tall. Yeah. Were um, you tall then? I was tall. Okay. Or I am tall. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know you, how you say that. Yeah, you were still tall. I was taller. You were uh, tall by then. Yes, but I wasn't very good. I wasn't very fast. I never had to jump for anything. Being tall, you don't mm-hmm. jump for anything. And then basketball, they want you to jump. You need to jump. Yeah. So I ended up quitting band to play basketball. And then somewhere in high school, towards the beginning of college, I decided that I really wanted to play guitar, something I had always wanted to do. And so I just started learning how to play, and that's kind of how I started things. Were you pretty good right off the bat? Um, I borrowed uh, my brother. had actually got a guitar for um, some lessons, and he gave up on it. And so I took his crappy old uh, Yamaha and thought if I could learn how to play on this, then I could learn how to play on anything. So spent weeks until my fingers bled. And then um, eventually you developed the, callus- calluses. Developed the calluses. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, just found something. It was just something I really enjoyed doing on my own, like sitting out uh, on the nature trails at the university and just kind of like playing and and having fun. And so, what university were you at? I went to the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. And what was your major? Uh, sociology, actually. Which was not music. Yeah, with a minor in world religion. So. Was there a time where you considered majoring in some aspect of music? Or 
Uh, no, it was really just a hobby at that point and just enjoyed, like I played, I started playing in my church and just kind of accenting um, the church, but I was a youth pastor at the time. So okay. music, my, my, my journey towards like actually doing music in front of people was actually in our youth group. It wasn't, it was, really wasn't supposed to be for anybody else. It was just supposed to be for me. So Because every youth leader needs to be able to play the guitar. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, what happened yeah. was I had some youth, I was brand new to the youth group and I had a couple teenagers that were learning how to play. One was a drummer and one was a guitar player. And I just wanted to build a relationship with them. And I thought, well, I'll play with them. Like, we'll just play and have fun on a s- s- Sunday afternoon or whatever and hang out. And as I developed a relationship with them, they're like, we should do this in front of the whole youth group. I'm like, no, we shouldn't do this in front of the whole youth group. And they're like, yeah, and you should sing. And I'm like, no, I, I shouldn't sing. And uh, that's so fascinating. Yeah. That, so they pushed you me to it. That you weren't really like, yeah. that wasn't your thing. At it the wasn't. Time. No. I mean, I, I played a mean air guitar uh, growing up, but <laughs> yeah, that's so but, interesting. Um, yeah. So. And you they weren't really even majoring it. in it. You no. were majoring in something completely different. That was not your yeah. where where God landed you is not yeah. where you started out. Absolutely, absolutely. So your major was sociology, mm-hmm. um, and did you know it by that? Surely had decided taxi driving was not going to be. <laughs> you know, did you decided yet what you really wanted to do? Um, I knew I wanted to be in some sort of ministry, and um, I was working towards that. I actually did get a job in foster care and as a social worker for a little while. Yeah, I saw um, your title was behavioral counselor or something like that. Behavioral... Uh, oh, yeah. I forget what, is, what it, it was. It, in, it was in behavior foster, coach. Yeah, behavior coach because in I our thought foster to myself, care. I need a behavior coach at times. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that was an interesting title. It was a high-placement facility in the state of Florida, so it was mm. for teenagers who had been in the system for quite some time. Mm. And there weren't a lot of options for them. Wow. A traditional foster home that wasn't was a working challenging, out. That so. was a challenging job. Yeah, we were barely married a year when we started that. And oh, we had seven teenage girls. Oh, and so you lived, <laughs> like they lived in your house? They, we li- yeah, we moved wife. to the placement and, and lived with these seven teenage girls. And how long had you been married? Almost a year. Oh wow, that's a it, so we became parents really quickly. It, yes, you did. I mean, it's challenging being married anyway. So yeah. to start off a, a marriage like that, it's challenging. Yeah. But it was a it was a great experience. It's something that Jessica and I wouldn't have traded for anything. And where did you meet um, Jessica? Jessica and I actually grew up together. Believe it or not, I was her youth pastor her senior year of okay. high school. She always had a crush on me, and I never paid any attention to her. Wisely so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even before I was youth pastor, though. And um, Yeah, my and, wife, you know, is seven years younger than me. Oh, so, you know, yeah, we were in the same youth group, but I okay. was, you know, way, she was way far behind yeah. me. You know, we were and, only three years apart, so not as big yeah, of a deal, but still yeah. it was enough. Like for her, she was a freshman. I was like moving into my senior year and just kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't want to deal with you. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah, we met each other in Jacksonville. Okay, and then and then started dating. Started dating long distance. She was living in South Florida at the time, and uh, then we got married, and I moved to South Florida. Okay, and that's how I uh, got into foster care and and all that kind of stuff. And then after the foster care, you oh you were a child welfare case manager on it. Yes, as well. Yeah, that was that was in South Florida, yeah. um, and my job was. Uh, reunifying families that might need some assistance uh, during, you know, um, any kind of issue, whether that be violence or drugs or 
whatever. And so my, my first goal was to reunify kids with their, with their, uh, birth parents. And then you did finally land in transportation. <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, in rental car. <laughs> in the rental car industry. Yeah. <laughs> and so you were there. Was that, were you, how did you end up there after all these other things? Yeah. Well, we were at that foster care placement, which was a high level placement for teenage boys and girls. And they were in, they had just lived really hard lives, and mm-hmm. we had just gotten pregnant with our first child and didn't feel like it was the best place to raise a child, and so we were looking for another job. We still had a house in South Florida because the market had fallen through during that time, oh, yeah. and so we still owned a place, so we just moved back down South Florida, and I had a friend who was working at Hertz, and he said, uh, he's like, hey, uh, you know, I know this isn't anything that you've ever done, but I think you could do it and you could make a lot of money. And so I tried and uh, ended up spending, I guess, seven years there somewhere close. Yeah. To and what, what was the job you had there? Um, I moved up to a branch manager right. and ran three different offices. Yeah. Boy, that's a challenging yeah. uh, business, I'm sure. It was, it was a with, lot of hours. You're dealing with a lot of people who are yeah. not in the best frame of mind by the time yeah. they get off the plane. <laughs> I had and, the Boston Red Sox account uh, oh, and wow. the yeah. uh, I had a private airport that President Obama flew into when he flew oh. into Southwest Florida. So that that's was pretty fine. cool. Yeah. I didn't get to meet him, but you know. Now this whole time... <laughs> You're, are you playing the guitar? Are you leading yeah, worship I'm, bands? Yeah, I'm, so I came back down to South Florida and talked to a pastor that we had served with before and said, hey, like this is kind of what I'm thinking. I think that God might be leaning me into this worship ministry, and I know that I don't have a resume to prove that I'm worthy of this. And he said, okay, um, well, why don't you just plug in? We have an interim guy right now. Why don't you just plug into the team and, and work through that? And I said, all right, that'd be great. And then when the job became available, I felt like it wasn't the right time for me. And so I just kept on at Hertz, and, but still plugged into their team and, and worked um, alongside of their team and just kind of became like super volunteer. You mm-hmm. know? And so you just, did you at that time kind of know that long-term vision, you really wanted to be a worship leader? Yeah. Or? Yeah. So I was working towards that, um, just waiting on kind of the timing and then... Eventually, I decided that I was ready to start pursuing that, and so I started putting applications out different places. The church that I was serving didn't have an opportunity. Um, and you were a, writing? Were you writing during this time? Writing your own no, stuff? No, not okay, writing. So you any hadn't songs. started that. No. So I was. I, I applied different places. I just I wasn't getting anywhere. Like there was no traction whatsoever. It was really disappointing because you felt like God had yeah directed you, and then nothing. Yeah, and nothing. And it was a, a solid two-year search Wow! Uh, before I landed anywhere. And uh, what I, this like pivotal moment for me was um, I did this cycling trip. It was my very first cycling trip. And I was just, you know, like sometimes you're like at the lowest point. You, know, like, you feel like, man, like I'm just so lost and there's n- I can't win at anything. My friend had decided to do this 300-mile bike ride from Fort Myers to Key West. And uh, he was slightly overweight, and he was going to do this thing. And and I was like, I think if he can do it, I can do it, and I just need to win at something right now. So is that right why now. you don't mind riding your bikes with me every once in a while? Cause I'm <laughs> I don't sli- mind riding bikes with anybody. Slightly overweight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wasn't in shape then either. And um, 
And so I just was like, I just want to win. And was this your? Where, did you ride bikes here in this? No, time, or was it so no, this? I, I, so I, you weren't I a bike owned rider. a bike, but I hadn't been on a bike in forever. And it, it probably wasn't. It wasn't like a Carbondale or anything. No, it no, was no, like no. A it Schwinn. was. It was. Did you a, show up uh, on a Schwinn that it day? It was a a big hybrid bike. I'll show it to you. It's in my garage. It's pretty heavy. Yeah, so I just wanted to complete that. And at the end of that ride, I remember I had been asked by someone that was on that ride if I would come and plant a church in Gainesville, Florida with them. And I wasn't really sure if that was what I was supposed to do. And I felt like God said on that ride, like, you're supposed to go to Gainesville. How many kids did you have at the time? I had three kids at the time. Wow, okay. So... Yeah, our fourth was born in Gainesville. Okay, so and so what? So you went to plant the church. What was that process like? Scary, crazy, um, all the above. Like any think about starting anything from scratch, rolling into a new town. We had we knew two other families that were moving with us, and you're just making and meeting new people and hoping that it works out, you know, for the best. So I had a, a second job as well. I worked at a barbecue restaurant. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've and done a little bit of everything. <laughs> and, you're, and you're perfecting your craft, obviously, <laughs> while you're at the church. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So you're, are you starting to write yet? or Still haven't started to write any songs. And um, were you the lead uh, uh, worship yeah, I'm definitely. Pastor? I'm the lead worship leader okay. at this church. We signed on for a two-year commitment and worked with them for two years. And this is also, it's worth pointing out, the shift in worship styles is you know is really significant over the last 10 oh, yeah. 20 years um, in how people lead worship and so sure. we'll talk about that more in a little yeah. bit but you were figuring out you know what your own personal style is I'm assuming sure sure yeah um, I mean in being in a college town since we were in Gainesville Florida um, there was a lot of it was a lot younger crowd Um a lot of students that weren't being utilized at all, like no one had ever asked them to play drums at the church. And so I just gained a lot of people through that. And then after our two-year stay there, I spent a year in Gainesville, and then uh, God led me to Union City. So How did that happen? Because that's, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's this is bizarro, isn't far it? away. Yeah. <laughs> So when and how did that happen? Yeah, so at um, Shift Church in Gainesville, I was part-time. Um, we had also support raised to be part-time, so that way we wouldn't be a financial burden to the church. And so after our two-year stay, I felt like it was time for me to, to move on to try to find a full-time position. And so I started applying like I did previous two years. Uh, thank God it didn't take that long Uh to find a place and so uh, so do for those of us who are not in the ministry yeah. do you just go to LinkedIn or or uh, man it hot, is hot just jobs like, or yeah, it is just as crazy as monster. that and it's probably I love the church but it's probably you get treated better in the professional world um, as far as like communication goes and the way that like you know you just apply and you just hope that somebody would like actually right. respond back like yeah. you're just like sending and this says don't call the church don't call you know so and so don't stalk our pastor on instagram you know whatever <laughs> it is yeah and um, well sometimes i'm guessing i mean most most positions are filled by a committee a search committee right and so it could take ta- it could take a lot of time you know yeah. like so and so gets resume it could be like weeks before they even meet to look at those resumes, right. you know. And so you're just holding out forever. Um, my father-in-law just finally told me, he's like, you need to stop being so picky and just apply anywhere that you think might be a possibility. Yeah. And so 
I saw Crosswind. I had no idea where Union City was. I just knew it was in the state of Tennessee, and that was kind of in our parameters of where we were looking. Mm -hmm. I thought I looked at their website for like two seconds, and I thought, okay, well, maybe this might be a place I could fit in. And so I just set a resume, and then I didn't hear back from them for like months either. So it was crazy. <laughs> yeah, that was Jeremy's fault, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I think Easter was in there too. So, <laughs> like, you know, but. Uh. <laughs> and so you, they get your resume, they call you in. Is there, a, I'm, I'm assuming that there was a committee. At yeah, Crosswind. so they had a hiring committee and we did some video calls and okay. things like that. And then did like you have that. to come in and like lead music? Yeah, and then they brought me in, uh, brought my whole family in, and we made the. 14 hour drive or whatever it is from Florida and kept getting deeper and deeper into the woods going, where in the world are we? You yeah. know, like, uh, but finally get here. Yeah. And yeah. so then you had to, you had to perform on a Sunday. Yes. Not perform. Sorry. That's yeah, the wrong word. Yeah. The lead worship on a Sunday. There's a little bit of both of that. Yeah. yeah. So, so because you're in that, in that business, not business, mm-hmm. but you're in that ministry. Sure. What, what are, how do you walk that line between leading worship trying to be good, you know, trying yeah. to do the best job you can, trying yeah. to lead, but trying not to be a, I mean, I think you do a tremendous job leading worship, but yet not making a, you know, center point of yourself, sure. whereas a lot of worship, you know, leaders have a hard time with that now, because the whole the whole process of praise and worship in a church setting has evolved so much from, you know, when I was a kid, you know, the song minister would always just have a hymnal they would stand up there, and I mean, I used to, as a right. kid, try to mimic their hand <laughs> signals because I could never figure out, you know, how yeah. exactly they knew, yeah. you know, and how exactly that was supposed to help anyone. Well, those people know. actually had to read music. So know? I don't you, have to do. See, that, yeah. So. so they, so so they, and they would do, and they would always do the first verse, the second verse, and the fourth verse. Yeah, we always skip the third. I don't know why. They always That's where the, the bad third. words are. In I the guess hymnals. so. The third verse <laughs> is inconsequential. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, that, and that's what, you know, the choir's behind you in mm-hmm. robes, and that's what a lot of people sure. who are older still, I'm sure, yeah. are comfortable with that. Yeah. I personally prefer, you know, a more contemporary style of worship. Sure. So, you know, in the, in the, when you go to the conferences with other worship leaders and y'all talk about, you know, process and procedures, you know, what, how, how do you walk that line? I think um, you have to prepare in a way that skill is important. Uh, I tell my team that there's two things that we focus on is skill, and then we focus on our hearts. So skill is is the time that we're spending learning that song, or I you know, talk about getting married to a song to where I don't have to think about, you know, where's the, this chord going to fall or what is this word or what does this song actually mean, all that stuff. Like I want to know all of that about the song Almost like I'm tired of seeing it before I even start seeing it on a Sunday. And then, so you're working really hard on that skill section. So that way, when you come in on a Sunday morning, that's all heart at that point. And so you don't have to worry about like, oh, where are my fingers supposed to go? You know, um, you can be kind of reading the room and feeling where people are, um, that kind of stuff. So and I think it, the line there is, it's, it is a gray line, but like people might come in a crosswind and go, this is performance because we have, you know, colored lights and we dim the the house lights and we have drums on the stage or, you know, I play, I lead with an electric guitar. So 
that could feel performance to some people and some people it's not, you know. Um, well, do you, um, well, to that point, honestly, a bunch of people in robes is also performance. It is. You know? It is. So, yeah. so that's, there's probably no difference in yeah. that. It's all perception. Right. Yeah. So can you tell a difference between the first service and the second service at times? <laughs> I mean, is it different when you, you know, you get a different... I don't Sense. know if I should answer that. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. You can uh, feel. You can feel because I think the thing with, and this happens with music, regardless if if you're just playing a cover song, like a Beatles cover song, right. or you're or playing a worship song. There's this thing that happens between the two groups of people, and music kind of like blurs that line of stage, you know, performer and audience. Mm-hmm. A good performer or a good musician will bring that audience along with them. And so when the crowd is in it and they're involved and they're singing along to Let It Be, then that's an amazing time. But you could be singing Let It Be and people just stare you down and yeah. it would be a terrible time. Yeah. Um, so it's the same with on a Sunday morning. If if people are coming and they're ready, then it, it can be electric. Yeah. You know, uh, almost to the point where I'm like, I don't know if I want to stop, you know? Um, and then there's other times where second service could be less people and they're just rowdier. Like yeah. they're just like, they, it was like they were, they came and they, they brought it and that the band feeds off of that too. Cause it's a, a communal experience. So yeah. do, do you, uh, when you came here, I mean, when I came here, you know, I was blown away by the talent of the folks that that sing and worship at Crosswind, were you a little nervous? Like, what you know, what am I gonna? Were you wondering if you were gonna find, you know, the level of professionalism that you found here? I was worried about it when I first came. We had a, a pretty good team. They just weren't really being led in the right direction, and so we spent a good year and a half, my first year and a half, just really working on our skill. <laughs> you know, like working on getting better as a band knowing how, where our limits are, um, how to push people and things like that. And then I think at this point now, we're at the stage where people are coming in and going, oh, I want to be a part of that. So like we're gathering people that are even more skilled and talented, which is awesome because then it just makes the whole experience better. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's it's the type of praise and worship and music that you would find in an urban, you know, center, yeah. you know, so it's really just incredible that, that, uh, my wife and I were able to find that here, yeah. you know, we're so grateful. The, the whole I church think it's is just like looking at people and telling them that they can do it. Yeah. You know, like I don't think cross, I think crosswind wanted to do it. They just didn't know how to do it. They didn't know they could do it. And they just needed someone to say, like, you can do this, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is really remarkable. So so at some point along the way, you started writing your own your own stuff, Yeah, right? so I had tinkered around with writing, you know, before I got here. Um, I actually wrote a song for my wife, and I sang it at our wedding. Um, okay. So I had some songwriting stuff, but nothing. Did the song like, you wrote to your wife have the words Union City in it? Uh, like, yes, we're absolutely. headed to Union City, <laughs> that kind of thing? No. Okay. <laughs> Uh, that would have been uh, really weird. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I had done that and I, I felt like if I had full time opportunity to be a worship pastor ever, that I would be doing myself and my church a huge disservice if I didn't entertain this. Um, and songwriting is not something to toot my own horn. It's more, I feel like a church should have its unique voice and there's a language that 
the people of your area talk in and talk about. And there's things that are going on in our hearts that are different than like, say, Elevation or Bethel or Integrity Music. Um, In fact, if you really dig down the worship music scene as a whole, there's probably like three or four big players that write all the world's songs. And I was actually at a worship conference and they they said that and they challenged us <laughs> to write stuff. Um, it didn't it may not be as good. you know, it may not melodically be amazing as as like oceans was. but um, it shouldn't be that way. Like the church should have a local voice. And so that's why I write is so we could have a local local voice. And so one song is Start With Me. That, mm-hmm. Is that you wrote that one? Yeah. So um, that's one of my favorite ones. So we're going to take just a second and just listen to a little clip of it. Okay. I hear people already Ready for a change But no one seems willing Give up anything. So start with me. My spirit's willing, but my flesh is weak. Lord, start with me. With a holy fire that I cannot. So I really, really like that song. If if anybody wants to listen to that or any of your other music, what's the best way to find your music online? Um, on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Title, all the YouTube. They can just search your name and, yeah. and Matt Crossan, yeah. and you come up. So, yes, um, what are the biggest what are the biggest challenges in trying to write and record and in getting that done? It's got to be a process, like writing a book or anything else. Yeah, I think the the biggest challenge is like anything that you're trying to do is muscle memory is just like actually doing it daily, whether it's just a little chorus or a little one-liner or a little melody that you're kind of humming along all day. It's you're always working for the next right. And so you learn that you're just building upon itself and not just be overwhelmed by going, oh, I got to write an entire song today. I got to write verse, chorus, follow it up with verse two. I got a stellar pre-chorus and a bridge that raises it to the stars. Um, I'm going to just concentrate on what is it that I'm feeling right now, write that down, capture that, um, and then maybe look at it tomorrow and go, eh, that was great for yesterday. I'm going to move on or... Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some gold there, some some treasure that I want to dig out. Of so just that doing it, just jumping yeah. in and doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know we talked about cycling. That's a big part of your life and your ministry now. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the bicycling ministry you're a part of? Sure. I'm a part of Ends of the Earth Cycling, and I started in 2013. That was the very first ride that I did, 300 miles. Um, and what's unique about that ministry is that we actually raise funds for youth internationally. About 90% of the world's resources are here in the United States, but we have about 10 to 15% of the world's youth population. So 
that really what in cycling is the earth cycling tries to do is tip that scale and put some money in organizations um, that are actually trying to make a difference for te- uh, for youth across the world. So last year, um, I pedaled about 3,000 miles for this organization, different states, and we raised funds for places that dealt with human trafficking or um, children who had been orphaned because of martyrdom, things like that. So it's it's a definitely a huge part. It's I've wrote songs on tour. It's a it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal for me. So. Well, there's nothing quite like cycling, and in this area, yeah, you know, we have some great, yeah, wide open spaces. Absolutely, you can ride for miles and miles and miles and never see another person or a car or anything. And people look at you really funny here <laughs> in Northwest Tennessee. Well, there are something. a few of us. There are a few of us that are out there, yeah. and it is funny when you do encounter someone. Yeah, you're like, hey. it's like hey, it's a long lost fan. <laughs> Hey, you know, you have to stop. And I've actually run into you before. That's true. You know, cycling. Yeah, not so, too far from your house. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which is where I go. <laughs> Thanks for throwing that in there. Um, no, And I had been, I had just ridden a thousand miles, yes. actually. Yes. I was coming back you from. You looked famished. Yeah, I was on my thousandth <laughs> mile that day. So uh, what's what's next for you? What's what's in the, I mean, you got, you've got four little kids now, right? Three? Uh, four kids. Four four little kids now. Yeah. Um, they actually, if anybody, um, they're actually in some of our advertising. They're <laughs> they they're little models. Yes. So I just Either actually. Either that or we're just like here way too often. I, so. No, you're here all the time, which we love that. <laughs> I actually just looked at an ad with them on it again today that's going in the Paducah newspaper. Huh? So yeah, so that we continue to use the picture of your kids. <laughs> but actually the reason why I paused on because we have one picture of three of them and another picture of the fourth one separate. Yeah, because Nathan didn't want to participate, probably. And so, yeah, yeah, so we use them. We use them differently. But anyway, so what? What? What's next for you? Uh, we're in the birthday season at mm. the Crossan family household. Wow! Uh, so Levi's birthday is this Sunday. Uh, then two weeks after that is my daughter's birthday, Macy, and then my birthday. Then in March, I have the other two little ones, Nathan and Nora. So we're just going to be birthdaying it up for the next couple and, of months. And, um, you know, we do birthday parties. Oh, yeah. Discovery well, now I do yeah. know that. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, we do. We It's a big, it's a big booming yeah. thing here um, because especially that time of the year, where else can you go and have a big giant it man slide it's very that you can slide down? So, well, thank you so much for doing this for us. It was yeah. fun, fun getting to know you better. Yeah. And now Andrew Gibson is taking us behind the scenes at Discovery Park of America to see what we may be able to discover today. Hello, I am Andrew Gibson with the Education Department here at Discovery Park of America. And today I'm with Russell Orr, Discovery Park's own in-house scientist. And today we are going to be learning about the T-Rex. That's right. And what about the T-Rex? Well, I came in here to solve a problem, Andrew. I want to address this idea that the Tyrannosaurus Rex was a scavenger. You've probably heard this. A lot of people have heard it. Oh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex is a scavenger. I, I've read that there was even a lecture symposium uh, called Steak Knives, Beady Eyes, and Tiny Little Arms, a picture of the Tyrannosaurus Rex as a scavenger. I, however, side more with the uh, next lecture symposium called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? A portrait of the T-Rex as a predator. For, for a, a long while, people would argue, and by people, I mean John R. Horner, a few other paleontologists, uh, would talk about how, well, 
if you're really big and you have teeth that can bite through bones to get the bone marrow from dead animals, and you have itty-bitty arms compared to other predators, maybe you aren't a predator. Maybe your job is to show up after the thing is dead, or maybe after it's already mostly rotted, go up to it, bite through the, the, the bones to get the bone marrow, and then keep going. And since you're really big, you can scare other animals off of the carcass and eat it yourself. Uh, so the argument uh, was that uh, the T-Rex was a scavenger and possibly an obligate scavenger, one who mostly or uh, necessarily scavenged. Paleontologists have mostly rejected this today. They think that the uh, Tyrannosaurus rex acted the way predators do today. We would call this uniformitarianism, where you look at what's going on now and you use that as the model for the past, that if a T-Rex found an animal that was dead, terrific, a meal that you don't have to fight for. But if it found the animal and it wasn't already dead, it could help it out to get to that point with its teeth. And then how does this compare to something like uh, like a velociraptor or anything like that? Well, uh, a velociraptor probably wouldn't come up to your kneecap, Andrew. Uh, velociraptors are not very big animals. Um, it it uh, the, the thing the thing about dinosaurs is like remember we we have dinosaurs in our museum, but we are Discovery Park of America is by no means the first museum to have these dinosaurs. So uh, we we have our uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, for example, with its head leaning forward instead of like at a forty five degree angle, the way you see many many uh, T Rexes shown. Um, if we were the first museum or the first book or the first movie to show something, we would have uh, a really good advantage in shaping people's perceptions of what those things look like, right? Uh, with dinosaurs, and, and this is somewhat understandable because we've been studying them for so long and we did the best with what we had, but some of the first dinosaur specimens that were put up, some of the best, uh, some of the first uh, dinosaur conclusions that were reached were in error. And a lot of people, like millions of people who went to see the movie, millions of people who went to see the first T-Rex, millions of people who read a certain book, got the wrong idea. And we need to, you know, actually put some effort into uh, uh, moving on from these long-held and, and uh, strongly entrenched uh, misconceptions about dinosaurs. Now, were some of these misconceptions about dinosaurs, were they made out of haste by a certain person? Was it one famous paleontology? paleontologist, I'm sorry, um, or, you know, w w how did that happen? Well, uh, there are certain names that, that are ascribed to it. Um, I, I, I talk about John R. Horner or Jack Horner, and, and like, he's a really skilled paleontologist. There's no question about it. He also likes to be on TV. Uh, I don't think it's a, a bad thing that he advocated some of the uh, controversial theories about dinosaurs that he did because it forced us. It and by us, I mean the scientific community, it forced people to re-examine what they had presumed was true. That, you know, uh, we, we come home uh, every day, we have certain assumptions, and we don't ever bother to defend those assumptions or, like, really, really look at them. Uh, Jack Horner made us do that. Another uh, couple of guys who were heavily responsible for this problem would be Edward Drinker Cope and Charles Mars and their attempts to outdo each other during uh, a period called the Bone Wars or Great Dinosaur Rush. So what do you mean they try to outdo each other? What were some of the things that they would do? Uh, well, uh, the thing about um, uh, science, especially back during the early days, was um, when, when children come in here to Discovery Park, if I look at a little girl and say, you know, you look like an Alice, I'm going to name you Alice. Come over here, Alice. And she says, 
my name isn't Alice. She's right and I'm wrong. Um, her name was set much, much earlier. Uh, when they were first digging up these new species that nobody had ever heard of, uh, whoever named it first, that was it. I'm never going to supersede a, a parent's name for their child. Well, whoever publishes this stuff first, they get they get naming rights. So uh, Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh were skilled paleontologists, but in, in their efforts to outdo and preempt one another, they made some very serious miscalculations and, and flaws. And um, for, for a while, uh, Europe, which was, you know, the center of science and paleontology, looked at us as like the literal Wild West of paleontology. Oh, my gosh. Did you hear what they did? Oh, my goodness. Yet another rhinoceros-shaped beast that they've come up with another name for. Now, some people quit the field in disgust because of this. So, Russell, thank you for, for coming on and sharing more about this with us today. Uh, and thank you all for listening to Real Foot Forward, a West Nessie podcast. And we hope to see you here real soon. Thank you for listening to Real Foot Forward. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. Plan your own adventure to see beyond at Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. Be sure to also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates.